Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And sign you up to something that helps. It helped me. He's dead! It's software. It mimics him. You give it someone's name. It goes back and reads through all the things they've ever said online, their Facebook updates, their tweets, anything public. I just gave it Ash's name. The system did the rest. After her partner Ash dies in a car accident, Martha is deeply affected by her loss. She discovers a service that allows her to communicate with a digital replica of Ash, created using his social media profiles and other public online data. If Martha wants the replica to be more faithful to who Ash was, then she has to grant access to her private messaging. Sounding. This is the plot of the episode Be Right Back from the British dystopian futuristic series Black Mirror. Written in 2013, this episode explores the theme of dealing with grief and the use of artificial intelligence in a world with advanced technology. A decade later, we're not quite there yet, but we're starting to get close. Happy birthday, Kimberly. Look at you. You're 40 and all grown up. You look beautiful, just like when you were a little girl. You're listening to Robert Kardashian, the lawyer and father of the Kardashian clan. Well, it's not actually him. Remember when I would drive you to school in my tiny Mercedes every day and we would listen to this song together? He passed away in 2003, and this video was published in 2020. But if you watch the video, you'd have serious doubts. That person looks like a young version of him. The voice and the mannerisms are the same. The only strange thing is the eerie light surrounding his body. I am so proud of the woman that you've become, Kimberly, and all that you've accomplished. I can't all even describe what this meant to me, my sisters, my brother, my mum and my closest friends to experience this together, wrote Kim Kardashian in a post on X, alongside the video of the digital replica of her father. And I'm with you every step of the way. Welcome to Euronews Tech Talks, the podcast that delves into the impact of new technologies on our lives. Bringing your loved ones back digitally is one of the applications of deepfake technology that we're witnessing these days. Is this part of its negative or positive potential? We're not sure. What positive advancements for society can this type of technology bring and what exactly does it entail? To address all these questions, I've spoken with an expert who specialises in monitoring the impact of emerging technologies. 
My name is John Egan. I'm the CEO of L'Atelier BNP Paribas. Uh, we are a company that works on quantitative foresight solutions and strategic intelligence for uh, European governments. Let's listen to the conversation. We are talking about deep fakes today, which is a very important issue because we're seeing so many more of them in circulation on social media, uh, on the internet in general, um, kind of occasionally permeating outlets and news coverage of certain events. So just to begin with, could you define for us what a deep fake actually is? Uh, two things to consider here, but a deep fake is an algorithmically constructed piece of content which is um, typically either altered or an entirely contrivance. And generally speaking, it refers to a negative manifestation of that content, typically either misinformation, disinformation or, or malinformation. The second one being intellectual property infringements, the third one being defamation, and the fourth one being pornography. Um, if the same technology is utilized for more positive means. It's typically referred to as animation or filtering. And how do they work at the technical level? What's the technology behind them? They are algorithmic in the sense that we have neural networks that are able to construct um, these deepfakes, leveraging effectively the technology is called a GAN. Uh, it's a generative adversarial network. So it's a it's a form of machine learning that is able to construct high fidelity uh, images and audio now as well, or video that is extremely lifelike. The technology has been around for a number of years, but the level of refinement and the evolution of it has been particularly rapid over the last five years in particular, to the point now where it's increasingly difficult for the average person to discern a difference between what is now fake and what is real. And what's actually the purpose of a deep fake? Why would people create a deep fake? That's a really good question. We don't tend to use deep fakes when we're talking about something positive. And I know we'll probably talk about some of the opportunities here as well. But because that is the context in which the term is used, it is generally speaking orientated around a usage which is somewhat nefarious. And that could be political disruption. It could be the construction or creation of pornographic content, especially pornographic content, which is maybe um, replicating real people or using real people's imagery without authorization. And obviously then copyright infringement as well, which is topical at the moment because the, the writer's strike and the actor's strike, this is one of the topics that they're concerned about, that performers are worried about their image and their voice being used without their permission, either during their lifetime or posthumously. So it generally falls into those four different areas of misuse and the motivations they are in can be anything from the hobbyist, creating pornography for personal use to people creating very nefarious misinformation or disinformation to disrupt democracies and uh, political intention. So I'm not sure if I misunderstood, but at the beginning there, were you saying that there are, even though we use the term deep fake generally, for all these you know, malicious things, as you said, these malicious videos and these imitations of celebrities, pornography, etc. There is a positive application for deepfakes. They can be positive as well. Or is that something I misunderstood? No, you're correct. But we also suffer with a lot of complex technologies. What we sometimes find is that there is a communications gap. When we talk about something that is difficult to understand, especially for a lay audience, we can often find that the technology gets misappropriated and miscommunicated. And in this instance, we tend to use the term deepfakes socially around negative usage. 
That doesn't necessarily mean that the underlying technology can only be used for negative purposes, but the social connotations of the term deepfakes is such. However, the underlying technology can be used for plenty of myriad different positive use cases as well. There's lots of commercial applications. If you think about translation, for instance, imagine a company with um, offices all over the world being able to create an AI, a bot that's able to communicate to people and respond to questions in their own language. You've also got things like really interesting practical use cases could be the reanimation of a loved one that you've lost. What that could mean for people, both in terms of their grief, but also imagine an older person who is living at home and wants to remain independent. You could create an AI assistant that replicates, for instance, a a lost spouse. Uh, And that AI assistant will have their voice and could even manifest visually as that individual. And it could remind the person to take their medication could remind them to lock the doors and close the windows in the evening time. It could ensure that if they have any sort of health event or accident, that's immediately communicated to emergency services and family members. Also therapeutics, anonymizing therapeutics for people who aren't necessarily comfortable. People can create avatars and create voices and then actually interact with the therapist in a way that they might not have done beforehand. So there are plenty of different positive use cases for this type of technology that extend beyond just entertainment and translation and the kind of fundamental corporate needs right into the very personal and kind of intimate familiarity associated of friendship and kind of combating endemic loneliness as well. You've raised some really interesting points there that I think we'll probably touch on a little bit later, maybe perhaps more the ethical side and and the personal side of things. But just before we move on to that, if we could go back to the the more technical side of things, what are the the most common tools or software that are used to create um, deepfake content? Oh, it's a good question. And I, I suppose from an audience perspective here, the important thing to remember is that this content is is very, very accessible and very, very cheap. So it will take you all of five minutes to go online and find many different websites that will provide this to you as an open source solution. And then if you have the technical capability to do so, you can go well beyond that and construct really high fidelity deepfakes yourself. The reason that's important is because there is a scale consequence to that. When something is both cheap and accessible, it becomes extremely easy for that content to scale. And if that content is in some way nebulous or indeed nefarious, then it becomes very difficult to combat that. So where did deepfakes actually originate from then if, if we've had this kind of or fledgling technology or, or link technology for, for a, a while now? Where did deepfakes actually come from? The a technology itself is a child technology of neural networks. And for the last 10 years, there's been quite a few different universities who've been experimenting with these technologies. And people who are maybe au fait with this space generally will have seen a lot of really convincing videos that emerged about seven or eight or nine years ago from the likes of MIT Media Labs and other well-known universities who were experimenting with these technologies and were able to create these pieces of contrived content that were extraordinarily convincing. At the time, they were really you know, mind-bending for, for people close to the space, but the speed at which they've evolved is, is kind of extraordinary. And where it kind of rose to popular prominence distinct from the actual technical research that had been undertaken for a number of years prior was primarily to Reddit. So for those of your listeners who are not familiar with Reddit, the self-titled front page of the internet, a massive uh, social media platform where users can subscribe to various different forums 
and Reddit has had, despite being extremely popular, has had issues over the years with um, with content management and, uh, and content censorship. But on Reddit, we began to see the emergence of casual hobbyist users creating pornographic content in a very high volume. And there are an innumerable number of people with the will and the skills necessary to create that type of content. And they were using that and they were doing, using celebrity profiles. They were using individuals who hadn't uh, acquiesced or given authorization to use those, that information. They were taking photographs offline. And obviously that only gets more and more concerning and malicious. As you can imagine, there's a spectrum there. And, and very quickly, you begin to see children's images being taken from social media platforms and, and they're being used in that way as well. So it very quickly began to throw up some concerning questions. Reddit was really where it became popularized for people. And there is a, a Dutch author who wrote a book a number of years ago called Porn for Bankers. And he talked about how the sex industry historically has been one of the great adopters or the great adopter of new technology. The author's name is Hans Eisenach Smeets, if anyone is curious, but he wrote very convincingly about how um, the sex industry had always adopted new technologies very quickly and made them commercially viable very, very quickly. And to a large extent, that's what we saw. We saw both a commercial use case and a, a viable number of hobbyists creating content to make this socially relevant very quickly. Up until that point, it was not something which was really touching the mainstream. Second instance of where it became very apparent was uh, post-2016, where we'd seen in the US election at the time a massive misinformation campaign. We did see subsequently that during that next four years, we began to see the emergence of visual deepfakes, not audio at that point, audio is quite novel, but visual deepfakes where videos were being created that effectively serviced kind of conspiracy communities who had a desire for this type of content. And we began to see it exacerbate the trust issues that many people have now institutionally where a lot of this content was being taken as real and there might not have been the sophistication in some of these communities to understand that it might have been compromised or the willingness to understand that it was compromised. So just how dangerous are deep fakes then? Because we've kind of touched on two things there. I feel there's the the more personal level, you know, kind of these this the idea of sextortion and people's own image sort of being manipulated into doing things that they haven't done. And then this kind of idea of misinformation and you know we saw we touched on on it there post 2016 um, kind of environment after the trump election the brexit referendum so it seems it could be very dangerous potentially on a political or even democratic level as well so just how dangerous are they you've done a good job james of stratifying the concern because it does extend from the individual level to the organizational level, to the institutional level. All three levels are threatened by this technology. So yes, at an individual level, you could have somebody stealing your identity and it could try and defraud you or defraud somebody close to you. There are examples already, for instance, of people who have faked hostage situations where a parent has received a call from their child saying they had been kidnapped and to deposit money in a bank account or bring money to a certain area for the child to be returned. When in fact, the child was healthy and fine and, and no issue. But it was in a very, very elaborate form of scam and obviously goes right to the heart of, of people's greatest concerns. At an organizational level, we've already seen instances of executives who have been defrauded out of money because they've got phone calls from their bosses who they spoke with and the fidelity of a phone call was such that we could believe that and they have transferred funds to scam accounts on the basis of a, a verbal instruction from their superior. 
And then at an institutional level, this can be used to fundamentally undermine institutional trust and undermine democratic process. And it is being used to do that. And it gets combined with the like with botnets to massively exacerbate that problem. So you now have bots that are creating this content and bots that are spreading this content and bots that are amplifying this content. So you have a multiplier effect in place that can massively exacerbate the issue. And given the speed of today's news cycle, there is very, very little capacity to correct these issues. So how can we protect ourselves against these sorts of risks and the spread of fake news, as it were, the all these deep fakes? Can you expand on that? Well, it's a very tricky thing to do because if you begin to consider some of those risk areas, I mentioned things like posthumous IP rights. If somebody, for some reason, wants to bring my image and voice back to life after I have died, what rights do they have to do so? What rights do my estate have on that content? We just don't have laws for that at the moment. We think about the justice system. We're about to enter an era where images and audio files and video files will no longer be reliable evidence within criminal justice systems. And especially for jury systems, when something is undiscernible to the human eye, how do we convince humans that this is true or this is false? And we've already seen that happen on a number of occasions where public figures who have claimed that audio or video is faked. And that is believable. That is plausible at this point. For things like identity theft, you need a different set of solutions. Advice regulation. As you begin to see AIs emerge that are providing different forms of a dynamic advice, including financial advice, we don't know how to uh, regulate against that yet. Censorship is going to be a real challenge as well. State-sponsored censorship using your kind of computer-generated news presenters and journalists, for instance, is going to undermine a lot of journalism, um, especially if they have the authority to compel or to provide licensing to um, journalistic institutions or broadcasters. And I think one of the big risks that we need to be careful of is a degree of social cynicism. So how do we, as a society, protect against from the cynicism and skepticism which gets naturally embedded in a population who've become accustomed to nothing being true or real or complete. We built a world for a modernist age, for a modernist philosophy. And now that we're living in a kind of a postmodernist age, we have all these modernist institutions which are being undermined by postmodernist critique. How do we protect against all of these things? There's no single solution. Each one needs to be taken on its face. And you can do certain things to mitigate risk. You know, I think that people are becoming more effective at managing their online profile. The less information that's out there about you, the less information there is to take advantage of is the simplest one. You know, don't put your kids' information online, photos, videos, or, or otherwise. I mean, you know, be more effective at protecting those spaces. And um, at an individual level, that's about as much as you can do. You can try and familiarize yourself with some of the telltale signs. Something might be a deep fake, you know, things like incongruity with skin tone or parts of the body like hands or shadows around the eyes, unusual blinking patterns, unusual lip color, you know, peculiar facial hair. Those sorts of things might be helpful. But to be clear, that's only for the low end versions of this, low fidelity. ones. So with that in mind, it is a problem which is ubiquitous and will be increasingly ubiquitous, but a problem that is going to be very difficult to resolve because it will come at us from so many different directions. How do you know what to trust is going to be one of the big conversations over the next number of years and how we we reinstitute trust in institutions 
and how people can maybe move back to depending on news sources. Would you say that the answer lies in more regulation, more education, or both? Because um, I assume that, that from what you were saying before, that, that it, it would need a, a mix of both of that for for people on a, an individual level to know how to you know combat deep fakes or protect themselves against it, but then also for governments and authorities to be able to try and keep them out of, of, of things that can undermine the legal system, the political system? Yes, but... Um, yes, to both of those things. Absolutely. You know, regulation will be necessary. Education will be necessary. However, there is a degree to which it is addressing the symptoms and not necessarily the cause. The reason that this, there's so much currency in this type of content is because of the fundamental degradation of trust in institutions in, in, from a Western world point of view. Um, certainly that's the case. So I think that the underlying cause is the reasons for that mistrust. And how governments go about reestablishing trust, I think, is an extremely difficult problem to solve because it's a bit of a, like, this is one example, but we see now politicians being targeted all the time. Who wants to be a politician in today's world? We need them. So we have a problem where when politicians are being attacked and oftentimes using this type of content as well, you disincentivize people's move into politics, which in turn means we probably have a lower level of capability within politics, less capable of dealing with some of these problems and doing it in a way that reinvigorates societal trust. And that is going to be a, a kind of a, an unvirtuous circle that we need to deal with over time. It does just sound so very scary in many, many ways, again, from a personal level and from a just a, a democratic level. It, it really does uh, just raise a lot of concern. So I was wondering if you could maybe to try and bring a bit more of a positive light onto things. How, can you explain how uh, deep fake detection and verification technologies work and maybe what their limitations, but also their, their, their strong points are? Yes. So I mentioned some of the ways already. So deep fake detection technologies, like other AI detection technologies, look at areas of regular occurrence of irregularity, identify that. However, the problem is that as soon as the AI is created to detect this, then the people building it know to fix for that, and then they fix for that. And then that generation of AI is no longer suitable for identifying those particular problems. So I think it's a reactive game. The solutions are constantly reacting to the problem. It's very, very difficult to get ahead of it. And in large part, it's because the origination point itself is so chaotic and anarchic like in its construct. So it is not something which is easy to resolve in that sense. Just on that topic, I was wondering if, if you could also tell us whether there are any particular cross-sections of society that are more vulnerable to deep fakes, whether that's um, being the subject of a deep fake or whether that's kind of falling victim to one and believing one. So there are positive aspects to this type of technology as well, but we don't tend to refer to them as deep fakes. But when we begin to look at the emergence of higher fidelity virtual landscapes, uh, and mixed reality environments in particular, there are ample positive uh, manifestations of that. An example that I have used with my own, my own father was that if, for instance, he wanted to be able to have an immersive experience of what Napoleon's retreat from Russia looked like, that's something which we're not far away from. For somebody to put on a headset 
and have a really visual and audio understanding of what that must have been like in those constructions. So anything that you've ever imagined is we're on the cusp of being able to create a world space that you can inhabit for a period and experience that to some extent. There are many positives, but it's like talking about knives. If we're only talking about knife crime, we're not going to talk about how knives are used in the kitchen for cooking, right? So there are positive manifestations of the underlying technology. When we're talking about deepfakes, we're talking about a threat specifically. But the people who are most at risk are older people who are social media inclined. So think about older parents or grandparents, 65 plus, who are avid Facebook users. They're probably the people who are most likely to be taken in, hoodwinked, whatever, by these technologies. They don't have the native skills in general to identify something which may seem untoward or peculiar. Going back to the other uses for this technology um, that you've mentioned a little bit already and kind of stepping away from yeah, this negative view of it, what are the commercial opportunities that this technology can offer? Massive marketing and branding opportunities. You, you, you allow companies who are creating digital or virtual brand ambassadors that are multilingual and uh, can interact with audiences dynamically across the world in, in really fulfilling ways. Think about the linguistic aspect of entertainment. So you've got a new movie that comes out. Well, now, instead of having to have dubbing, you could have the actor speaking in their own voice in a different language. So the movie is shot and then it is immediately distributed in every language for every market that it's entering. And then we mentioned before this idea of the kind of posthumous reclamation of actors or actresses from the past or or entertainers from the past, musicians or whatever else, bringing them back. We've already seen some examples of, um, you know, touring musicians who are dead. So the holographic musician tours, We'll see more and more of that as well. So I think there are certainly huge commercial opportunities there. And are there any kind of uh, ethical questions surrounding some of these opportunities? Yes. Yeah, we touched on some of them, but you know, posthumous IP rights, clear ethical question. Also, the idea of using somebody's imagery without their permission is clearly an ethical concern. If somebody takes someone's photos off an online platform and then uses that to create pornography, that is something which everyone would find, I think, very unsettling. But has that person done anything illegal? At the moment, they have not. How is permission provided for that or a commercial incentive provided for that if that's something somebody wanted to engage in? None of those things are clear, but it's already been done and there's clearly ethical consequences. The justice system, like I mentioned, is going to be challenged by this as well. And then professional ethics around advice and how that is managed are, is going to be questioned too. But if you want a real-life example at the moment, keep an eye on the actor's strike in the US they're talking about and how their image rights will be utilised when they are not performers. Are there any kind of ethical issues regarding, say, after-death AI? I think you mentioned that maybe right at the very beginning. It sounds a bit Black Mirror-esque to me, which is one of my favourite series, I have to say. Um, but yeah, there, are there any kind of, um, what, what are the ethical issues surrounding that? This, I think, is a really curious one because there's an obvious positive aspect to it too. The episode, you're recalling the one with Donald Gleeson where he comes back as a robot, the the husband dies and there's a robotics company that creates a very high fidelity reconstruction of the husband 
using all his emails and all of his written content, compiles it and creates a really accurate clone effectively of the deceased man is exactly what we're talking about here. Not in robotic fidelity, though. We're talking about this as a, as a voice assistant or potentially a holographic. Now, I think that some part of that is simple to resolve. You could have, in the same way that people have do not resuscitate rights, or we have organ donor cards, so we can acquiesce to allow our family members to utilize our uh, imagery posthumously and potentially commercialize that if that's within our their gift to utilize. That's something that we could provide quite easily within a will or, or some other standardized format. But I do think that is one use case which we're quite close to because the cost of living, the cost of property is such now, the cost of of healthcare for older people. A lot of people cannot afford to put older parents or grandparents in an assisted living facility. A lot of people want to remain independent for longer anyway. So if you can create infrastructure in the home that facilitates that, and is also able to effectively provide analytics to healthcare or to family members so they can understand exactly when you've passed the point of independent living, I think that's obviously something that has a very effective use case. And I think that's probably inevitable in the not too distant future. Just as my last question then, and uh, I always ask this uh, because, you know, we're talking about such a vast, fascinating subject. So I'm sure there's something I've missed. Is there anything that within this kind of discussion that we've not talked about yet that you really think needs to be, you know, discussed or brought to light or just just a point that we've not not brought up yet? I would conclude on, though, philosophically, uh, we're at this point of very expedited change. And that can make people feel agitated and uncomfortable and like they don't belong anymore when they see technology changing so quickly. But we're also seeing the emergence of technology-driven generations. So we're used to saying things like you know, millennials or Gen Xers or baby boomers or, or Gen Zers, whatever. We're used to using those references. But the truth of it is that the rate of technological change has actually altered the nature of those generations. If I kind of take a step back, if you go back 500 years and you look at an 18-year-old 500 years ago and look at an 18-year-old 400 years ago and an 18-year-old 300 years ago, their lives were virtually identical if they lived in the same space, given assuming it's peacetime. So they're very, very similar lives. We're now at the case where somebody, at the point where somebody who is 18 today has a fundamentally different experience to someone who's 18 in five years' time. And somebody's five years after that. The platforms they use are different. The technology they use is different. The language they use is different. We are seeing a significant increase in the rate of cultural change that is made manifest and driven by technology. And that will make a lot of people uncomfortable. And it will make a lot of people feel like they're being distanced from society more generally. And I think that that's something to keep in mind that the consequence of technology always it ripples far beyond the use case of it. And we do need to be conscious of that. And we need to understand that the pace of change is unsettling for most, apart from the ones who are driving it in that moment. And that the people who are driving it, they're lasting, they have less and less time on top than they've ever had before. It's all absolutely fascinating. I feel there are still so many more questions I could ask. But for now, uh, John Egan, CEO of L'Atelier BNP Paribas, thank you very much. Thank you, James. Yeah, well, you aren't you, are you? That's another difficult one, to be honest with you. You're just a few ripples of you. There's no history to you. 
You're just a performance of stuff that he performed without thinking, and it's not enough. Come on. I aim to please. Aim to jump. Just do it. Before we go, we're listening to another scene from the Black Mirror episode. Initially, the AI version of her partner brings Martha comfort, but as she continues to interact with it, she finds herself grappling with its limitations and the unsettling nature of this artificial recreation of who Ash once was. The episode delves into the emotional and ethical implications of using AI to cope with loss and raises questions about the authenticity of relationships in a digital age. And when it comes to this, we must admit we don't have answers, only questions. I'm your host, James Thomas. In the upcoming episode, we hit the streets to ask you what you want to know about AI deepfake technologies. Then we'll answer your questions with experts. If you have any questions, please share them on Euronews and Euronews Next social media. We're reading them. This series is written and produced by Marta Rodriguez-Martinez. The theme music is by Leo Lebrun. Sound editing is by Jean-Christophe Marcot and sound mixing is by Mathieu Duchesne. Our editor-in-chief is Ali Isan Aden. If you aren't already, you can listen to the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a positive review and, of course, sharing it. Thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.